forget of the creator God, of the most high God. We can call him our heavenly father. So God, as we reflect on these truths and God, as fascinating comes and uh, brings your word to us this morning and preaches your word, God, I pray that our hearts would be focused on you and bringing you worship and glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. As we uh, continue to worship our God uh, during this time, uh, just a reminder that uh, with all of those wonderful rumors that are going on about what's going to happen this week, I don't know. So um, we'll let you know. (laughs) And we'll seek to honor God in whatever circumstance we may find ourselves during this week. Is that fair? That's fair. I think it's fair. All right, John chapter 1, if you have your Bibles with you, we'll be in John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42, as we are just looking at who Jesus is. And as you open your Bible, I was reflecting this week about an awesome game that uh, I used to play as a youth. Um, I think I did it as a youth pastor, too. Sometimes the lines are blurred. Um, It was called Sardines. And yeah, I know some people have heard that one before. It was a great game. I think it was a game in high school that we asked my youth pastor to play all the time. Uh, If you don't know what sardines is, it's kind of like hide and go seek, but it's in the dark. And the object is, is one person goes hide and everybody tries to find them. And then you kind of just, well, you pack into whatever place and like like sardines in a can. So you're just all congested. So the object is to be the first so that you could be the next person to hide in the church. And it was great, especially if the older the building, the better, right? Um, Because these new buildings, kind of like the one we're blessed with here, just don't have those dark alleys like those old buildings do. But it was a great game. And as I was reflecting upon that, as we look in John chapter 1, it's complete opposite of what we see here with Jesus. See, here Jesus isn't hiding. In fact, the whole point of what John the Baptist has been doing is to point him out. But there is this aspect of seeking after Jesus, finding him, calling people, and seeking him, and staying with them. It's interesting, though, as we look at John chapter 1, the heading, at least in my Bible, says, Jesus calls the first disciples. Strictly speaking, he doesn't do any of the calling. He's actually the one that John points to and calls, John the Baptist calls his own disciples to come and see who Jesus is. And John's disciples actually begin to follow Jesus. Disciples that will follow Jesus attach themselves to him because of the witness of John the Baptist and then the witness of the John the Baptist followers. There's this ongoing pattern that happens. We see three things that pop out of this passage as we begin to get into it. Of a process of discipleship that comes. Come, seek, stay. Three words, come, seek, and stay. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them up and follow along with me. Starting at 35 to 42, the word of the Lord says this. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. 
the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father God, we just thank you for this opportunity to continue in worshiping you. Uh, Lord, this isn't uh, a show, but an act of worship to, to hear and to see how you have revealed yourself in your word. So, Lord, I pray that you would use this to glorify yourself. Lord, I want to speak of you and I want to praise you. And, Lord, there's no ability of me doing this well on my own. So, by your spirit, God, will you use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost, to do what only you can do. And amen. So John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. In this first few, few verses, in 35 to 37, we see a coming to Jesus. And that's exactly what John the Baptist is doing. John the Baptist is calling people to come to Jesus. That's what we see. It's, you got a picture in your mind. There he is. Maybe he's got his, he's got his one foot up against the wall, you know, and his two disciples on either side, and they're talking. We don't know what. And then Jesus just walks by. And he uses even that opportunity to say, Behold, behold the Lamb of God. So the next day, again, John the Baptist was standing there with his two disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said that, Behold, look, listen, pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. This is important. The Lamb of God. Pastor Matt talked about what that meant last week. Lamb of God, lamb being the sacrifice. Well, sacrifice for what? For our own sin. In the Old Testament, a lamb was used as, as, a, as, as a picture of atonement, of how blood needed to be poured out to pay the price for his people's sin. And now Jesus is being described as the Lamb of God, but he will be the final Lamb of God. When you look at Old Testament sacrifices, blood flowed. Like, there was a sacrifice for everything. Blood was flowing but when Jesus died, the blood stopped because his sacrifice was sufficient to take away the sins of the world. He was the perfect lamb. John is saying, I am not the one who can save. Again, he's taking attention off of himself and pointing people's attention to something beyond himself. He is the one. He is the one who will pay the price for your sin. Your rebellion against God this Jesus will pay that price. He is the only one, the only one who will save. 
He's the one spoken of in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that was before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Sacrifice is the only atonement for human sin that God provided. Jesus was the lamb, the lamb of God. It is his blood that pays for our sin. That's what atonement is. This is the gospel. John the Baptist understood that our greatest problem and our only solution. He understood that our greatest problem was that we sinned and have sinned against a holy God. And because of that sin, because of our rebellion, because we have chosen to, to, to continue the opposite direction of what God has called us to, because we've sinned, our only right in this life is hell. That is our punishment. But the gospel doesn't end there. That would be the most depressing good news ever. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for us, our sin, a sin that we could not afford to pay back, a debt that we could not afford. And he sent his son to pay that price so that anyone who confessed with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior will have eternal life. John understood our greatest problem and that our only solution is Jesus. That's why right off the bat, when he sees Jesus walking, regardless of whatever they're talking about, he uses that opportunity to bring people's attention to the one who can pay the price for their sins. He's calling those people, his disciples, to come. Come and see the one who can take away your sins. Come and see. And that's what John the Baptist has been preparing for this whole time and is even continuing to do right now in this passage. In verse 37, we see that the two disciples heard him say this and they followed The word there actually means they followed as a disciple. There's a complete change that happens there. These two men standing there with John understood that John the Baptist was always pointing beyond himself and to another. This wasn't an abandonment of their leader for some sort of better looking option. Even though the Bible clearly states that both these men have nothing to Nothing special about them in terms of their looks. But being truest to what John was teaching, that disciples begin to follow Jesus. His disciples understood who John the Baptist was proclaiming, who he was proclaiming. Look back at what has been already said about Jesus. In verse 7, Jesus is the light. And in verse 23, he's the, the one whom Yahweh was returning to Zion. We also see the one so great that John the Baptist was not worthy on unstrapping his sandal in verse 27. In Isaiah 53, he is the one who would fulfill all of it as the new lamb of the new exodus. He is the one who would initiate the new age of the Spirit in verse 33, which we talked about last week, which was the baptizing of the Holy Spirit for that repentance and cleansing and power to conquer sin. In verse 37, as the two disciples left John to follow Jesus, 
we see that to understand what John the Baptist was saying was to become a follower of Jesus. One thing I love to do is one of the joys I have as a pastor, and, and I think it's a joy for anybody who gets to do it, is actually walk with people in their faith. To see God growing them and stretching them in ways, well, often in spite of me, because I need to be taking John's lesson and pointing people beyond myself to someone who is greater. To walk with those people and to watch God work in their hearts and mature them in their, in their faith. My job is very much the same as yours. We are called to be disciplers. Go and make disciples. That means to seek to mature people in Christ, not to make other Nathans or other Daves or other Matts or whatever it may be, but to make people more like Christ. But sometimes that person has the audacity to leave. I'm being sarcastic. You know, they come to you and they say, Pastor, I think God is calling me to go here or to do this. See, what happens is that God has matured them through my broken faithfulness to be a disciple who makes disciples of Jesus Christ and prepares them not to be here, but to actually go somewhere else. Right? See, if I'm so wrapped up in making other Nathans, I'm not going to be sending which is the hard part of discipling. When someone actually, when God takes hold of their life and they mature to such a point where they say, Pastor, I think, I, I think God is calling me to be a pastor myself or, or, or a missionary or something that's not here because we like to hold on to things. And John the Baptist comes along and his whole ministry is about pointing people to Christ and seeking to mature them in Christ so that when they see the Savior, they simply follow and follow after him. Maybe, maybe it's about being part of a church plant. You know, some of you have heard me say, my, our goal should be to be ascending church. And wouldn't it be great if God could use Knowwood ourselves to, to, to go and plant another church? London is growing. Huge. Fast. We see this in our housing prices. Right? There's lots of people that need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And if we are to be that, that means we have to be ascending church, which means we have to be maturing people in Christ and not making little me's, which means we're also going to lose somebody that we poured into. And that's something we praise God for. See, John comes and he calls people to come. Come and see who Jesus is. John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus because of John the Baptist's faithful witness. John the Baptist sought to proclaim who Jesus is so that his disciples would become disciples of Jesus Christ. That's the point. That's our job. To go around to other people and say, come see Jesus. Look who he is. Look what he has done for me. It's important in our job in making disciples to be truthful in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus will also cost. Not in terms of your salvation. Your salvation is free. You're saved by grace. 
But you know what happens as you mature in Christ is suddenly your attitude, the jokes that you used to laugh at, your friends may be a little different, maybe even your family. You could lose those things. In terms of your salvation, your salvation is free, but in terms of what you may have to give up for a far better treasure may be true. We need to be clear, following Jesus is costly, but it's worth it. We can, ha- we can give all sorts of reasons to come to Jesus, right? I grew up in the church. I've been to enough youth f- conferences. Come to Jesus and your life will be better, they say. Come to Jesus and you'll be happy, they say. Come to Jesus and you'll be financially sound, they say. Come to Jesus and your daughter won't die, they say. But John comes and says, come to Jesus for who Jesus is. If we come to Jesus on any other basis but Jesus, we will be incredibly disappointed because life is hard and God is still good. So let us call people to come to Jesus who is the light, the one who Yahweh was returning to Zion, the one who is, is, is so great that John the Baptist was even unworthy to unstrap the sandals, the one who would fulfill Isaiah 53 as the new lamb, the one who would initiate a new age, who would bring a sphere of repentance and cleansing and the power to conquer sin. This is why the disciples left John to go follow Jesus. See, John the Baptist's testimony causes his disciples to follow Jesus. John was constantly pointing beyond himself and to another. There is is this come to Jesus that John the Baptist is talking about and he proclaims. And as that happens, as we see in verses 38 to 39, the, the transformation that happens is the seeking Jesus. And as we look in these two verses, you got to ask yourself, what are you seeking? Or what do you want? Or what are you looking for? See, Jesus' first words in the gospel. You have to think about it, right? Because it's important. This is an important question. It's an important question for all of us to ask. It is the first question which must be asked to anyone who comes to Jesus. The first thing that if you come to Jesus, you must be clear about. What do you want? Why are you here? See, Jesus is calling not only these two men, but you and me to answer this very question. Jesus is confronting you and me. He's confronting anyone who is showing the beginnings of following him and demands that they articulate what they really want in life. Because again, if you're coming to Jesus because you want to be financially sound or because there's someone you love who's sick and maybe dying or because any other reason, You could be like me in high school praying to God that I'd get an A on the test that I didn't study for, whatever it may be. (laughs) If you're coming to Jesus for any other reason but Jesus, you're going to be disappointed. Jesus is the gift. And so often we treat him as a secondary prize, he's the prize. This is why Paul could lose everything in his life, yet still have joy. 
is Jesus. And he's confronting us this, with this same way. What do you really want? That's what the language actually is here. The NIV uses what do you want or what are you seeking. Jesus is calling not just these two men, but you and me to ask that very question. What do we want? So think about this. Think about all the ways that John the Baptist's disciples, these two men, could have possibly answered this question, right? We seek God's kingdom, they may say. We seek to rid the land of those wretched Romans. We seek the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. We seek the king from the David's line. We seek the truth. We seek the way. We seek the life. But the answer in verse 38 was what? Rabbi, my great one, literally my great one, where are you staying? Interesting, right? Jesus comes. He's walking down the street. And he suddenly realizes that there's two people following him that weren't following him before. And he turns around and he says, what do you want? And they could have answered in any numerous different ways. But they asked this question, where are you staying? Where are you staying? And they come to him as their teacher. And their main concern is to stay with him. Staying is used in other places in John's gospel as abide or to remain. So how often is it that we come to Jesus with a checklist of things that we want from him, but these two men come to Jesus and they just simply want to be with him? I just want to be with you, they say, to abide with you. So what are you resting in today? Why are you coming to Jesus? Those who want to become Jesus' disciples, those who were seeking after him, were mainly interested in being with Jesus. So what are you seeking this morning? What are you coming to Jesus? So, so often we think that, you know, we, we, we come to Jesus so that we can know more, right? We kind of get the equation all messed up. Right? I gotta know more theology. I need to get deeper, right? I need to understand all of these big words. And the disciples are coming, and they're just like, I just want to be with you. I want to know you. I want to abide with you. To be with Jesus. And John, the writer of the gospel, wants you to inquire about Jesus, to go to Jesus, to behold what it's like to abide with Jesus, and then to actually abide with him. So what does it mean to abide in Christ, you may ask? We're talking about an intimate, close relationship, not a superficial acquaintance. It means to live and continue or remain. So when we are talking about what the disciples are doing here, abiding with Christ, they are seeking to live in him or remain in him. Those who are truly saved will have the desire to abide in Christ, to know him more and more. It is the position of a true believer is to abide in Christ. So let me take a little bit of a rabbit trail here, which is normal. I'm going to do a little bit of a side note, so follow me here. See, when a person is saved, what happens to a person who is in Christ, when that person is saved, who is staying or abiding in Christ, what happens when someone is seeking Jesus? 
know, in Romans 8, verse 1, we say this, we see this. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, which goes on and says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is the outcome of being and abiding in Christ. The person is held secure in a permanent relationship like in John chapter 10, verses 28 to 29, which says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Are you once saved, always saved? Yes. But along with that comes the desire to abide. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's, out of the Father's hands. See, when you seek after Christ, when you abide in Christ, it doesn't get you some sort of special level of Christian experience that is only for a select few of Christians. It is the position of all Christians, all believers. The difference between those abiding in Christ and those not abiding in Christ is the difference between saved and unsaved. So one of the proofs of salvation is perseverance or sustaining or sustained abiding in Christ. The saved will continue in their walk in Christ. The Christian will abide or remain in Christ. God will complete, this is the promise, God will complete his work in them, as Philippians 1 verse 6 says. And there will be fruit and that saving faith to the glory of God, as John 15, 5 says. Those who fall away, turn their backs on Christ, or fail to abide simply show their lack of saving faith. And folks, this is hard. This is very hard to understand sometimes. This is the hardest part of understanding of what it means to abide in Christ. Because I have loved ones who at one point or another said some sort of prayer. Or they heard the gospel, they showed a response, and maybe they were even baptized, yet they are no, but they're not abiding in Christ. I have youth that I've poured into, that I've taught, that I've walked in, because this is the flip side of walking with people. I've baptized only for them to walk away and not even care. It's a reminder that the saving work of Jesus brings fruit. It is secure, but it also brings fruit. Because abiding is not what saves us, but it is, it is one of the signs of a saving faith salvation. This is the hard doctrine of what's called doctrine of conversion. So what does it look like to abide in Christ, you may ask. Pastor, how do I know if I'm abiding in Christ? Well, let's see what the Bible says, right? Because that's what we do here. We try. Are you seeking to be obedient in Christ's commands? As John 15, 10 says, If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Or in 1 John verses three to 20, or chapter 3, 24, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in, Christ, in God, in God and him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. 
Are you seeking to follow Jesus' example? In 1 John verses two, chapter 2, verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Are you seeking to kill that sin? Are you seeking to mortify and just like tear apart? Like, I mean, I if there's a stronger word, if you can think of one, think about it. Like, are you killing the sin that is in your life? Are you killing that habitual sin? Because 1 John 3, 6 says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. These are amazingly confrontational passages. Do you see the Holy Spirit working in your life? Do other people see the means of grace working out in your life? Do they see how you are maturing and growing? Folks, this is why it's so important to have relationships with other people in the church so that we can tell each other, look, I see this happening in your life. Because I doubt. Everybody doubts. God, am I, like, am I growing at all? I seem to kind of just keep screwing up. So you need a brother or a sister to come alongside of you and say, look, Nathan, I've seen you grow in these, in these ways. Do you see the Holy Spirit working in your life? Do others? Are the fruits of the Spirit of Galatians 5 being shown in your life? Because 1 John 4 verse 13 says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of the Spirit." See, those who want to become Jesus' disciples, those who are seeking after him, are mainly interested in being with Jesus. They're interested in abiding with Jesus. They come to Jesus as someone calls him to come and see who Jesus is, but they seek him, and as they seek them, they want to abide with him. Why are you coming to Jesus? Do you want to be with him? Do you want to abide with him? John wants us to think about these things. As someone calls people to come to Jesus and those seek after Jesus, there's a staying with Jesus that happens. If you truly seek after Jesus, you will seek to stay with Jesus. That's what it means to abide. I'm not saying perfection. I'm saying seek. To desire the things he desires to live, to desire to live as he lived, to be more and more like the one who you, whom you are following. Let us be disciples of Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, you need to know him. So are you spending time in his word? Are you spending time in prayer? You need to see who he has, how he has shown himself in his word. But the effect of abiding with Jesus is shown in the next couple of verses as in 40 to 42 we see a staying with Jesus in verses 40 to 42 Andrew goes to find his brother they spend the night with Jesus they see where he's saying and what does he do the first thing he's like I gotta go find Peter I gotta go find him I gotta go tell him about this guy that I met named Jesus we found the Messiah we have found the one who away our sins. We have found the one that we learned about all so many times as we went into, into synagogue, as we went into the temple to learn about what the prophet said. We f I found him. Come, come, come and see. 
In verses 40 and 42, Andrew goes and finds his brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. What is your response to beholding Jesus? I was confronted with this this week. What is my response? What is your response to seeking after Jesus? It is a desire, it should be a desire to abide with Jesus and a desire to bring others to Jesus. What's amazing is Andrew's immediate response to seeking and abiding with Jesus is to go find his brother. There's no doubt we have found the Messiah. If there is any doubt, it's gone. He is the long-promised Messiah. Andrew became the first in a long line of men and women who discovered who Jesus was and went out to witness about who he was. The Christian testimony is all about a private witness to friends and family and brothers and sisters. And Andrew brings Peter in verse 42. Jesus looks at him as it has, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. you got to be like, what? What's going on? You can't just imagine what Peter's thinking right now. You shall be called Cephas. And he's like, no, my, my name's Simon, but thanks. Which means Peter. And Jesus declares what Peter will become. The focus isn't about the name change, which we actually will learn about later. We don't see the outcome of that until later. But what John is showing us is that Jesus, who knows people thoroughly and not only sees into them, but so calls them that he makes them what he calls them to be. See, next Sunday, we're going to, Lord willing, gather. We're going to gather, right? (laughs) Uh, Next Sunday, hopefully, we're going to gather. And Christmas will have happened. Yeah, Christmas is here. Like, just, anyways. (laughs) If you haven't gone your shopping, you're done. So, um, I'm sorry. Cash, Cash is the only option. Um, Christmas has happened. And one of those questions that's going to happen, especially with the kids, right? Every kid gets asked this. It doesn't matter from a, uh, someone who's older or younger. The question is always this. What did you get for Christmas? And you're going to tell them. Uh, as someone who's getting, I'm a little older than a child now, right? A little bit. And uh, uh, I love getting socks. As a kid, I didn't love socks. Now I love socks. And I'm going to say that with excitement. The child is going to say it with excitement. Whoever it is is going to say it with excitement. And if you are in Christ, though, here's the thing. If you are in Christ, you have received the best gift that can ever be given. Why is it that I spend more time talking about my Christmas presents than the gift of my salvation? Jesus Christ died for me. And he rose again. While I was still an enemy, he called me out of darkness and he called me into his kingdom of light 
So my question for myself and for you is, what am I doing with this amazing gift that I've been given? This is what Christmas is about reminding us of. It's about the gift. Jesus not only saved you from my, your sin, but he gives you a new identity, like we see here with Peter. And it's not a perfect identity, obviously, because we know what happens with Peter later on as he denies Jesus three times and all the times he has to take his foot out of his mouth. But he gives him a new identity. And in Christ, you are no longer identified by who you were or what you did. You are identified by whose you are. So the writer of John wants you and me to believe the testimony of John the Baptist, but not just to believe, but to respond to the testimony by following Jesus. To be able to ask that question, what do you want? You really can't answer that question unless you understand the depravity of your sin. Because when I understand how sinful I am, I really begin to see what my greatest need is. And then I see that Jesus is the only answer. But he gives us this purpose of remaining with him. See, those who behold Jesus will not fail to call others to go to him also. And those who go to Jesus will find him giving them a transforming new identity. And so what, you may ask? When we come to Jesus, he will transform our identity and we will call others to go to him. We see here in this passage three things. First, John the Baptist's testimony caused his disciples to follow Jesus. It wasn't complicated, right? It wasn't a long, complicated message. It was, behold, the Lamb of God. Second, those who followed Jesus remained with them. Third, is that even though they remained with Jesus, they went out to convince others to follow Jesus with them. So what we see here is a three-step discipleship process. Come, seek, and stay. So when we come to Jesus, he will transform our identity, and, he will call others, and, he will call, and we will call others to go to him as well. So let us be disciples ourselves. Let us continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of him, to be amazed by who he is and what he has done for us because our God is good. And his goodness is rooted in the gospel. When we say God is good, it's also recognition that, that we understand that we are not. That we desperately need someone to save us, and that someone is Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who grew up, died for our sins, rose again, is at the right hand of God, and he will return to judge. So what do you want? Let us be disciples. May we seek to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. And as we go out to make disciples of Jesus Christ, may we do that in faithfulness, not perfection, and faithfulness, sharing the hope we have this Christmas season. No pandemic, no lockdown can ever take that away. Let us continue to praise our awesome God. Let me pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for who you are.